0: And welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter to paying subscribers Monday to Friday. Occasionally I put out a few extra as well. Today I wanted to go a bit deeper into the area of fuel tax subsidies. The government decided yesterday to extend for the fourth time the 25 cents a litre tax cut for petrol and diesel that was brought in a couple of weeks after the beginning of the Ukraine war. It was initially designed as a three-month one-off cut in fuel taxes to ease the pressure of fuel prices going well above $3 a litre because the price of oil had jumped to $120 a barrel, US dollars a barrel, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the prospect of very big sanctions on Russian oil output. As it turned out, the Russians were able to keep pumping oil out. They just sold it to the Chinese and the Indians. And overall, the price of oil has dropped back to under $80 a barrel. Also, the New Zealand dollar's initial fall after the start of the Ukraine war has ended. And in fact, the New Zealand dollar has bounced since then. And that means that petrol and diesel prices, particularly petrol, uh, are now well below $3 a litre. However, there's been lots of inflation elsewhere. And politically, the main story at the moment, of course, is cost of living pressure. The new Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, has said his main focus is to look at what he calls bread and butter issues helping people who are struggling with high inflation and discarding projects and spending that the government is doing to really focus on helping those people who need it most because their incomes are not keeping up with wages. So one of his first acts was to extend that fuel subsidy through to the end of June, although no one actually believes that will actually end at the end of June, because remember, that's three months before the election. So effectively, it's now permanent. And it would be hard to see national uh, reversing it if they were to get into power. They've been very cagey so far in what they would do. So it looks like it's permanently in place. Now, this is not a cheap thing to do. It costs $2 billion so far. This extension for three months is going to cost $718 million for three months. So we're talking over $200 million a month for the cost of this policy. That has to come from borrowed money. And in effect, it is ensuring that a bunch of people who drive cars and utes and trucks are encouraged to keep driving those cars and utes and trucks, and maybe even drive them a bit more than they otherwise would. And we know from the research that this move actually did encourage people to drive a bit more than they otherwise would. But let's step back a bit and wonder, is this really the best way for the government to deliver the most help to those people who are most in need? Well, Infometrics has done an interesting study on who actually gets the benefits of these tax cuts? Turns out that people who are wealthier, who tend to own more than one car, who tend to have very big cars, who tend to drive them an awful lot, turns out they are the ones who get most of the benefits. So there's a good chart in today's email newsletter which shows that those on the top deciles are getting a benefit from this of upwards of $40 to $50 a week, whereas those on the bottom decile are getting something closer to $10 to $20 a week. Now, there are, as part of this package, uh, a half-price public transport fares, but for a lot of people in the last year, it hasn't been realistic to use public transport because of a shortage of drivers and all sorts of other issues, often involving inadequate bus timetables and um, a lack of coverage of buses and trains in many parts of the country particularly those that are most populated that are growing the fastest in the likes of West Auckland and South Auckland. For those people who have to race around often to more than one job dropping kids at school all of those things realistically they have to have a car. And uh, that means that um, the benefits of the half-price public transport don't make up for the extra benefits going to those on the highest incomes who use their cars, and often very big cars, an awful lot. So, what appears to be help for those who need it most, actually, is middle-class welfare. Now, I wanted to spend a bit of time looking at why it is that both national and labour seem to prefer or default to offering what you'd call middle-class welfare to ensure they either get in power or stay in power. I'll give you a few examples. Back in 2005, when the then Labour government of Helen Clark and Michael Cullen wanted to win a third term and were early in the election campaign behind Don Brash, pulled interest-free student loans out of the hat. Which means that those people who are going to university and polytechnic, who typically are overrepresented in the higher income groups, get the benefit of interest-free student loans. There's also been the most recent example of labour offering fees-free education for the first three years. Now that's been wound back to just the first year. But again, it's one of those middle-class welfare uh, items where the benefits go most to people on middle to upper incomes. And then we look at National. Now, National has uh, uh, protested against some of these middle-class welfare moves, but when they get into power have not changed them because they know it will be unpopular to get rid of them. Obviously, that includes interest-free student loans. And at least initially, some of the working for families uh, packages which when it was introduced was seen as close to middle-class welfare. Since then, of course, um, working for families has not been improved much. The sanctions and the clawbacks as people earn more income are increasingly nasty, and working for families now is much more of um, a help for those on the lowest incomes. Accommodation supplement um, as well used to be something that you could call middle-class welfare. Again, it hasn't kept up with rents, and for a lot of people it's inadequate in the share of income they have to spend on rents even after accommodation supplement has risen. Then we have National itself, which in 2014, again, worried it might lose the election, announced a doubling of first-home buyer grants and opened up KiwiSaver, to uh, people to use to build up deposits. Again, KiwiSaver grants and subsidies, um, although they have been well and back over the years, again, are, are benefits that go mostly to those who can afford to save. And there's an awful lot of people who can't afford to save and therefore don't get the benefit. And the doubling of 1st home buyer grants effectively excludes those people who might be able to afford a home uh, because often they need a deposit and they might need help from friends or family or uh, the people who are saving for them have had legs up over the years, you know, free cars, free rent, um, uh, help to get better education so that they're able to earn more but also save more. So what you see is increasingly governments of both the so-called left and so-called right use the arms of government to uh, target middle-income voters with what is middle-class welfare, rather than directing money to those people who are in the most need. And this is a perfect example with the extension of these tax cuts to do that. Now you may ask, why? why does everyone focus on the middle so much? Surely there are swinging voters all over the place. Everyone's got a different view and surely a government tries to look after the broadest group of people to get elected. Surely that's democracy. Well, under MMP, because of the way that election results are so tight, and that it it really forces people who want to win power to focus on the median voter, so not the 100% of voters, more like the middle 10 to 15% of voters who are most likely to swing, so they're not convinced Labour or national voters, They're most likely to vote, because there's a whole bunch of people who don't vote. And they're likely to be more responsive to the sorts of policy ideas that you put forward. Now, these are the median voters. And it's worth, I think, trying to paint a picture of who they are. And, you know, this is a fairly broad brush, crude thing, but it gives you a sense of what it is that political parties are trying to achieve, even when they say they're doing something else. So, uh, the median voter, who are they? Well, I'm calling them Ford Ranger men in Aotearoa because they are most likely to be older homeowners living in the outer suburbs of our biggest cities, or in some cases the very, very uh, highly expensive leafy inner suburbs of a couple of our biggest cities, but largely on the outer and who are mostly on the out outer suburbs of those big cities and in the smaller provincial cities up and down the country. So really we're talking about people mostly outside the CBDs of Auckland and Wellington, typically on the fringes, provincial cities, and all of the South Island. They tend to own their own homes, have a couple of cars... Um, Aspire to owning more land or property, uh, would love to have a batch, a boat in the uh, driveway, a jet ski and go out on weekends riding on their mountain bike, which they put in the back of their double cab ute, the Ford Ranger, which, by the way, has been the top selling vehicle in this country for nearly 10 years and still is. Uh, even though we've seen the rise of some electric cars like the Tesla 3 and the Tesla Y. Eight of the top ten most sold new vehicles in New Zealand are either double cab utes, so that's the Ford Ranger, the um, Toyota Hilux, the Nissan Navara, the Mitsubishi Triton, so they're double cab utes, or they're SUVs, so the Mitsubishi Outlander, the Toyota RAV4, uh, th- that sort of thing. So they're bigger, heavier cars or double cab utes. And they are uh, very popular, but increasingly heavy and use increasingly large engines, often diesel engines. They are um, incredibly popular. So this group, which I'm calling Ford Ranger Man, is very closely watched by both political parties through focus groups and uh, doing the best they can to understand their views. And it's pretty clear now, after 20 or 30 years of focusing on Ford Ranger Man, certainly the last decade, that we know what they're interested in, what they're not interested in, and what they're likely to respond to. So they love it when house prices are going up. They love it when mortgage rates are going down. Because often, when mortgage rates go down, house prices go up. They love it when fuel prices stay low. They love it when no one is telling them where to drive, how fast, whether to be locked up, what type of barbecue to use, and uh, whether or not uh, public land, public resources, parks, beaches are... uh, under the control, or at least uh, in shared control, with Tangata Whenua. So, co governance is not popular with Ford Ranger Man, and neither are rising mortgage rates or falling house prices. So, governments of both flavors tend to think about how do we reward and enable, or at least avoid, Ford Ranger Man from getting upset to make sure we either win government or stay in government. So, we've seen uh, the likes of the fuel tax levy cuts, the fuel levy cuts in the last um, year or so, but also things like National Party's doubling of 1st home buyer grants in 2014 and uh, a real breakout of the protests last year against the ute tax and also against... Co governance, and it's one of the reasons we've seen uh, the change of leadership in Labour and the refocus on bread and butter, Upper Hutt, West Auckland, Christchurch, Napier, Tauranga issues, not CBD, uh, Central Wellington uh, issues, not on buses busways, cycleways, those sorts of things. Interestingly, this morning we hear uh, through an interview Michael Wood gave to Glenn McConnell and Stuff that it looks like the government's pairing back of spending will include a review of the Auckland CBD to Airport light rail line, so-called light rail. It's actually going to be heavy rail and involve two very expensive tunnels which avoids going up Dominion Road, in large part to avoid... A decade or so or more of disruption to that main route Dominion Road. Uh, orange cones turns out are not things that Ford Ranger Man loves or maybe would love to drive over if they could. It's interesting that Wayne Brown who has appealed successfully to Ford Ranger Man uh, noted that um, his least favorite thing was the orange construction cone blocking people from getting about their lives in their cars. And another good, good uh, example of, of how Ford Ranger Man thinks and what is most important is uh, when there was discussion about a second bridge for the Auckland Harbour that was going to be dedicated to buses and cycling. The then National Party leader, Judith Collins, piped up and said, that is crazy, surely if you're going to add a, a bridge it should be for extra cars and um, it's not feasible for people with families to get around Auckland on bikes and the example given was how are you going to get your kids to netball practice and uh, that that's a, a good example of how people who... Uh, have built their lives around a suburban lifestyle, getting around in cars and uh, having the freedom to um, drive around without having too much congestion, see the way that government operates. I've included a bit more detail about Ford Ranger Man in uh, the email today, but I thought it was useful to try to explain and frame my a view of how governments of both the centre-right and the centre-left somehow tend to self-correct either under pressure or as a default position, self-correct to focusing policies on the middle and not ensuring that funds do get to those who are most in need. If that was the case, both parties would be significantly increasing benefits, accommodation supplement, reforming working for families, effectively funneling a lot more of taxpayer cash to those people on the lowest incomes, also revisiting the idea of a very high and very comprehensive GST rate. I include in today's email newsletter the latest analysis from the IMF on who has the best slash worst value-added tax or goods and services tax system in the world. It turns out New Zealand has the most comprehensive, punitive GST rate in the world. It covers the highest proportion of goods and services in the world, particularly food and, and, and drink and vegetables. And secondly, it collects the highest share of GDP in the developed world. So the weight of tax revenues is the highest on GST rather than other types of taxes in New Zealand. And that's large part because we're the only country in the world that has developed that does not have a tax on capital gains or wealth in the way that every other country does. Interestingly, the IMF is recommending that Australia, which excludes food from its GST, should try to um, improve the breadth and coverage of its GST, but also recommends that the government removes some of the subsidies it has for homeowners who sell their uh, owner-occupied home uh, uh, capital gains tax-free. So the IMF is recommending Australia actually improve its capital gains tax, uh, even though Australia already has one. So um, the reason I point out this GST issue is that we have built a tax system over the years, over the last 30 years, which was, which has progressively increased the weight of tax on those who have to spend 100 or more than 100% of their income on goods and services. Therefore, they're not saving. And secondly, um, it has focused a lot of the attention on PAYE tax. So those people who are uh, workers paying PAYE and spending all of that PAYE on goods and services have the highest tax. And uh, those people who get a lot of their income from capital gains and who are able to save a lot, they are relatively less taxed. Now, you could argue, well, hang on a minute, Uh, what about the sort of half of the population who get tax credits and accommodation supplements and benefits who actually net don't pay any tax at all, and that the bulk of the tax revenues are paid in the top half of the income sphere. Now that is true, but uh, also uh, that that doesn't take into account the relatively low share of income for those upper income groups that is actually spent rather than saved and secondly doesn't take into account uh, gains on uh, uh, capital which aren't taxed at all. We have a deeply unfair tax system which screws the poor and governments which progressively over the years have targeted middle income voters to get re-elected in our MMP system which tends to focus people on the very small group of swinging voters because elections are so tight and you can't actually uh, win everything so to speak as you might have done on a first-past-the-post uh, system. And so uh, that tends to a, bake in the status quo, the focus on uh, middle-income earners getting most of the benefits of the state's activities particularly those who own residential property and who get around town in cars uh, that are petrol and diesel powered and punishes those who are renters, who have to use public transport and uh, who are also having to spend all of their income on goods and services. And that's not going to change because that 10-15% to median voter group is still there there is the chance in the long run that the number of renters eventually overwhelms the number of landlords. This is sort of inevitable result of a larger share of the housing stock being bought out by landlords. And as the population, although we used to think it was aging, actually isn't so much anymore, in part because we have so many young migrants, that um, if you saw the population of renters, people who wanted to live in CBDs, who liked public transport, that you had more and more of those people uh, uh, willing to vote for those sorts of policies, that somehow you'd have a change of political situation. Well unfortunately that sort of natural demographic benefit of um, an, an increasing part of the population who are interested in living close to CBDs in apartments and townhouses, not having cars, preferring buses and trains and uh, and bikes, and also who um, you know are earning PAYE and the likes, that's going to be a large share of the population. The trouble is uh, many of them don't vote, and also many of them are leaving the country and are being replaced by temporary migrants who also are much less likely to vote. So um, at the moment, the only way in which the inequity and the unsustainability of this um, hyper-focus on the middle, uh, the only way that's sustainable is if the people in the middle realise that it's not benefiting them or it's hurting their plans for the future. And that's where the issue of finding deposits for kids comes in and the risk that your kids who can't afford a home in New Zealand eventually leave the country and you have to watch your grandkids grow up somewhere else. That for me is the only way that those in the middle, Ford Ranger Man, will start to revisit the, um, the problems with the existing system. If it's clear that the end result is they have to watch their kids grow up on WhatsApp and that beautiful double cab ute with the bikes and the jet ski and the boat is something that they tow to the beach on their own and have to send pictures on WhatsApp of the fish they catch or the wonderful summery day to some poor son-in-law and daughter and grandkids stuck in London or Brisbane uh, looking at the pictures and liking and sharing them and that's the extent of their engagement with their grandkids. On that cheery note I'm Bernard Hickey. That was the Dawn Chorus for Thursday, the 2nd of February. Kakiteru.